Rethink Retail, the evolution of retail in today's connected world. Welcome to the Rethink Retail Show, your source for the most recent trends and innovations in commerce. Join host Paul Lewis, CMO at Valtech, a global digital agency focused on strategy and transformation in retail, as he explores the most recent trends and innovations in commerce. This episode of Rethink Retail, sponsored by Valtech, where experiences are engineered. In today's episode of Rethink Retail, I'm joined by my guest, Steve Laughlin. Steve is the general manager for the global consumer industry at IBM, where he leads the company's retail, consumer products, and wholesale distribution channels. Steve, thanks for joining us today. Can you start off with telling us a little bit about your background and your role at IBM? Sure. I'm excited to be here with you today. First of all, I started my career in retail. I was a manager in the store at Sears in South Florida. I then went back to graduate school. I was actually the very first summer intern ever at Office Depot's headquarters. David Fuente, who was the CEO that took it from three stores to, I think, almost 800, hired me when they were right at about 200 stores. And I had an offer when I finished grad school to join them as an assistant buyer. And I decided to go off into this, uh, the dark side of consulting and joined Ernst & Young, then joined IBM. And uh, I've been at IBM for a very long time and kind of worked my way up. And I now am the uh, global general manager for our business focused on what we call consumer industry, this whole value chain, serving these clients that serve consumers and thrilled to be doing that. Yeah, I imagine uh, given that background that you've seen a lot of changes over that time frame from the, the early days at, at Sears and, and Office Depot to you know where we are today in this digital age. Well, I think some people would say it's changed a lot, but some things stay the same, right? It's still about meeting customers where they are. Back then it was in the stores, it was in the catalog, it was in the call center and meeting their needs and having associates that are ready to do that, that are trained. In some ways, it hasn't changed much. Just you sort of meet them in different places than you used to. Today, you might meet them on a social media site. You certainly meet them on a mobile phone. You meet them on a website. And you still, by the way, definitely meet them in the store an awful lot. Yeah. Physical retail is still the dominant form of retail transactions. But I think you're right. I mean, the fundamentals haven't changed. The nuances in the way that you are meeting consumers and engaging with them and supporting them is changing and evolving rapidly. But the fundamentals of the retail business of, you know, being a strong retailer that has the support, the connection with consumers is the essential ingredient. You know, we've been people have been running around saying the store is dead and there's an apocalypse and all this for a long time. And and we've been saying something different. We've been saying stores matter, but you have to make them matter. Two years ago, we did a, a study with the NRF that came out and actually focused on millennials. And it said millennials actually really want to be in stores, but they want an experience. So it said stores, the role of stores is evolving. It's not about that this is the place where you go just simply to get product, get it fulfilled, to do a transaction. But they want to go and feel a sense of belonging, community, experience, learning, a lot of different things. And the data was clear. Millennials wanted to go to stores. 
And so that's, and by the way, that learning has been reinforced. There was another study this year by another body that showed the same thing. So stores matter, but you have to make them matter. And I think that where we've seen retailers struggle and maybe even fail is, I would argue, is where they've had difficulty making their stores matter. And then where we see retailers thriving, it's where they're making their stores matter. And and you see for every store that's closed, there's more that have opened in the last several years. Yeah, that's so true. I always look at, you know, if we go back to those early days of retail, what the store's purpose was, was very transactional. It was, did you have it in inventory and did you have a, a point of sale device that I could purchase it from? But those two functions of stores have been largely improved by online. You know, the infinite selection of inventory and sizes, immediate comparison of pricing and easy uh, checkout. So now stores have to evolve into that next level, like you said, an experiential level that offers the consumer something for that experience that's beyond just the simple transactional. So I, I think you're, you're spot on with that. And you start to think about whatever your business you're in, you start to think about, hey, in my business, is my product, is my offering, my inventory, is it take with bonobos? Think about the, the impact bonobos has had. I'm a, you know, I'm a kind of a tall man. How much of what I buy in men's clothing is what I call take with? How much do I need today? I spent a, you know, a decade going around talking with clients about, hey, you really ought to serve the big and tall, the short, the large man. The conversation was always, oh, you know, the inventory cost, the inventory risk. We can't have all that inventory. And I was like, well, you don't have to. You can have one of each size, one of each color, one of each pattern. And then all of a sudden, here comes this company that says, oh, and you can also have one of each fit, another dimension. And so they applied what you just said, the internet, internet model, and they turned the business model of men's clothing on its side because the thing they recognized was, you know, men's clothing, it's not so much a take with business. I mean, how many men buy the jacket that they must have today? They've got to take it home with them. Well, they don't. And so were these, these weren't rocket science ideas, but these were ideas that somebody said, hey, you know what, we can do this differently. And uh, there was a lot of players with incumbency in these markets that they could have thought about it differently as well, but didn't. And so, you know, there's those, you know, how many new stores opening versus, you know, stores closing model is this ideation, this new thinking, this turning these business models on their sides and looking at the problem differently. Because guess what? It turns out that a lot of inventory isn't convenience or take with inventory. And then you look at other categories like DIY, do it yourself, where, hey, that's a pretty intense convenience take with business probably. So I think that's what we're, we're in this era of technologies enabling people to more than generationally, maybe multi-generationally rethink the business models and the role of the store. You're right. When the, when the store started, the store was everything. The store was where you kept the inventory. It's where you did the transactions, where you did fulfillment. It was the primary place where you met and interacted with your customer. And all of those assumptions maybe aren't true anymore. And uh, those who question those more and more of those assumptions or those that ideate and reinvent and, and can do it in an agile, fail-forward way, 
you know, they're thriving and winning. No, that's that's exactly right. A lot of the successes we're seeing are new brands that often are born digital that they don't have that entrenched mindset. They're open to examining and rethinking everything. And by having that that different mindset, that different approach, they're seeing a lot of success out there. So I, I couldn't agree more with what you're saying. And ironically, though, there's even some old brands that traditionally would have been, we would have considered maybe manufacturer wholesalers that would have primarily gone to market to the consumer through retailers. You know, they would have been wholesalers that have gone now DTC, direct to consumer. Right. They've gone online. They've opened their own stores. And by the way, there you go, stores opening while other stores are closing. And you think about all those brands that are well-known brand names that have opened their own stores. And by the way, even a few that have opened and now closed their stores because they maybe don't need them anymore. But well-known brand names that have opened their own stores that line you know, malls and airports around the world because they've gone direct to consumer. Now, why? Well, because they found that they could present their brand promise to the consumer more effectively. They could present their complete line assortment. I'll give you an example of one. You think of Lacoste, you know, Izod, the alligator on the shirt that I don't know how many years ago kind of lost market share and sort of left North America. But but then, you know, it was so popular when you know I'm not a young guy, but when I was in high school having a having having eyes on shirts and a <laughs> collar turned up with that alligator. But then, you know, like a lot of things, it was sort of not the thing anymore. But then when they re entered the US market, they didn't re enter the US market through department stores or other retailers. They re entered the US market with their own stores. And if you go into those stores, you experience Lacoste like you've never experienced it before. They have multiple cuts. They have tremendous basic color palette, and then they have seasonal color palettes. You experience their product offering like you never experienced it before. And that's what they're able to present to you by having their own stores that they would never ever be able to present to you through another retailer. And so these brands are making the decision that, wait a minute, you know, we shouldn't just be a brand company that manufactures and wholesales, but we should control our brand. We should deliver our brand and our product directly to the consumer so that we truly have the consumer understand what we offer and so, frankly, we capture more of that consumer's share of spend. So I think, again, we're seeing beyond a generational transformation, we're seeing a, a very, you know, step function change in the model. And, and it's because, again, as you said, I don't need all the inventory at a store because that's where everything happens anymore, because I can communicate, can digitally communicate with the consumer across the world in a way that wasn't possible when, you know, the model of modern manufacturing, wholesale and retailing was created 80, 90, 100 years ago. And so everything's up for grabs. So true. Uh, you know, it, it's funny. Uh, I had uh, Indochino on the show 
before. And, and their model, I mean, they have stores, but again, their model is custom-made suits. So the idea is you're going into a store, you're selecting fabrics, you're getting measured, you're getting a high-end customer service, but you're not going to walk out of the store with a product. That's going to come six to eight weeks later. So absolutely true. And then the other point that I love is, on one hand, we're talking about it's imperative for some brands and retailers to, to innovate in order to survive. But on the other hand, we're also saying it's an opportunity. This is a time for transformation that can actually elevate your brand, change your relationship with your consumers, change your brand positioning, and actually be a renaissance for many established uh, companies with the right positioning and the right strategy. It's absolutely, and that's the point. Apocalypse, no. Renaissance, yes. And if you think about it, these businesses, the whole model was based on averaging. Mass, you know, mass marketing was based on averaging, right? We're marketing to the masses. We're putting the product, you know, the brands, they're putting product in stores that are going to appeal to the most people. So the reality is that if you look at these, as you call the born on the web companies, those companies are driven by focusing on smaller segments of people in a very targeted way, very often very data-driven. And so I would argue that there's a little bit of a chicken-egg kind of conundrum here, but the reality is is that we know more about consumers today than we used to. You could argue computers have cookies and therefore we can track consumers better and understand them better. Or you could argue that consumers, because there's so much more information, sort of, you know, I used the cable television example. When I was little, I went from five television channels to like immediately 45 when we got cable to if you have Dish or Direct TV, you have hundreds. And all of a sudden, you can start to understand consumers in a much more detailed way. So it's a chicken egg thing that consumers actually aren't such as this homogeneous mass group, but therefore you can start to target their needs in a far more specific way. And companies are, and these companies that are born on the net, that's exactly what they've done. And, and they can focus on these segments and deliver to them very economically successfully because you know, it doesn't cost the same amount of money to start a company. You don't have to have distribution through traditional retail. You don't have, to, you know, you can get things sourced. You can market on the internet. You know, there's a there's very different cost to start start a company than it used to be 30 or 40 years ago. And so you can serve this very small segment. And so if you think about it, the legacy retailers that were used to serving the masses, they're disadvantaged because do I want to be served as an average or do I want to be served by somebody who's focused on me in a more detailed way? And, and I think that's what we see is, is that, that those, whether they're the direct consumer brands that have, you know, old school brands that have gotten the, the new religion or whether the, the new born on the web brands that started with the data-driven focus, there's, there's great success in not playing the averages. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that if you go back again, we go back to those early days, 
with Sears and Office Depot and, and things like that, we, we had an environment that not only were stores the inventory center, so you could only stock the hits, if you will, but also yeah. advertising was on those five channels and you could only advertise the hits. You couldn't advertise for something that would only hit the small segment. So what's happened is we've opened up the long tail and, and personalization and customization to the specific needs. And that's an exciting opportunity. And there's still tons of opportunity to drive it more, right? We've, we've opened up the long tail on inventory. Now, by the way, I think we've played the long tail on personalization as much as we're going to because the pushback on, on privacy and everything. And I actually would argue... By the way, we've gone further than we needed to because I would argue that with our with our most sophisticated clients, they've realized there's a lot of diminishing returns. Once you get customers into what we call customer lifestyle clusters, so instead of demographic segments, once you get them into a customer lifestyle cluster, you know, and that's, by the way, related to some of our current research with the NRF. And by the way, we do all this work. I'm on the board of the NRF. I was so... Um, we started doing all these collaborations with the NRF, but you know we've identified these micro shopping moments. And so once you understand their lifestyle cluster, you can start to understand the, these micro shopping moments, which maybe we can talk about. So if you understand their lifestyle cluster, you don't need to understand them that much more personally, because if you understand their lifestyle cluster, then you can start to focus on the context of what they're doing and when they're doing it. And then the other element that's missing in our book that's where the huge upside is, is what I'll call hyper-local. And I'll, and I'll put it this way. If you think about, go back to that 80 years ago or 100 years ago when there was a store and there was a proprietor, um, and you, know, you can pick your retailer that started a store, that proprietor, they knew when they did that work to say, okay, what am I going to carry? What are going to be the hits in my neighborhood? That averaging is what they did. And I like the way you said that. I'm going to steal that from you. We majored on the hits. They knew a couple things. They knew their customers. They knew their customers by name. You know, the, the local grocer knew my great-grandmother and knew she was from Ireland. And when she came in, she, he'd say, hey, Mrs. McLaughlin, you know, with the right brogue, you, you, know, <laughs> you always have this meat on Fridays, but I think you might like this new cut of meat I got. You ought to try it for the stew. And... That was knowing the customers, and that's what we've tried to do personalization with technology. And you know, and my point is we're done. We can't go any further there. But they knew something else. They knew the neighborhood, right? They knew the area around the neighborhood. That This is different. They knew what was going on. They knew when there was new, like new apartments being built. They knew when there was a new business opening up and that was going to drive new traffic. They knew if you were in New York City, they knew when the new subway line opened up and was going to drive traffic. They knew if school was in session. They knew that if this weekend that the Catholic Church Parish was going to have a big event. So they knew all these things about the neighborhood. They knew how the weather would affect different kinds of weather was going to affect sales. They knew the neighborhood. We haven't done much with that. Now, we've done some things. You know, we acquired the weather company a few years ago. We do a bunch of things with weather because, you know, everybody knows weather affects my sales, either good or bad, and everybody makes excuses. We actually can show people with the data the real effect. But we call this hyper-local. And, you know, it's everything I've described, events, local rents, the economics, the demographics, 
you know, like if you're in the city, what kind of people live here? Therefore, what kind of cats and dogs do they have? Therefore, what kind of dog food, what kind of hair products should you stock? All kinds of things can drive assortment. It can drive demand planning, can drive, you know, we can help drive down forecast here. But hyperlocal, the proprietor knew the neighborhood. There's huge upside still, you know, whether it's around store or whether it's around the context of that shopper who happens to be in the, let's say, you know, this lifestyle cluster of the young, single, highly athletic, and therefore this is probably a micro moment related to their post-athletic activities. So there's tons of upside still in using more data. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that you touched on is your work with the National Retail Federation. We were just at NRF, obviously, uh, last month. And you have a, a study that you've done with in partnership with them. And, and you talked about, you touched on this for just a second, uh, consumer shopping in micro moments. What does micro moments mean and, and how do retailers want to capitalize on these? We kind of got into this, this habit of every two years, you know, doing a real big study. And as I said, two years ago, the big, the big aha was, hey, millennials are screaming at us. They want to be in stores, but they want to experience. So stores matter, but you have to make them matter. This newest one, we surveyed almost 19,000 consumers in, I think it was 28 countries. So it's a global consumer-oriented survey. So it's statistically relevant. There was, you know, kind of three big ahas. One of them was this micro moments piece. There was a couple others, which is the overall shopping behavior has changed. And micro moments was one that with all this digital enablement, maybe, you know, so in simple speak, everybody's got a mobile phone in their hand. So there's a shopping device in everybody's hand always that every week, some 70 plus percent of people engage in micro moments of shopping, which is at some point they're shopping. And so understanding that, how do you engage in that? And so, and I'll give you a simple example of it in just a minute, but because I had a client where they were like, oh my God, we're not involved in this the right way. And so that means that shopping doesn't happen the way it used to. Shopping used to happen like if I'm in the grocery business, people went on a weekly shopping trip. Then shopping was, well, they shop when, you know, maybe there's a replenishment trip, this shopping is bifurcated. They might replenish every once in a while with a, a trip to a club store. Then they may be doing daily meals with a stop at a grocery store, or they may be now that when they leave the gym, they may be grabbing a quick high protein kind of meal somewhere. So if you don't understand these micro moments, they may be pre-ordering it. They may be looking for something they can pre-order and pick up. And if you don't understand these micro moments and how they shop, you can't engage with it. But if you do understand these micro moments that when somebody leaves the gym, they're going to look for something they can order, pre-order on a mobile device and pick up quickly because they're trying to get to work. And if you you don't understand that micro moment, you're not going to get to participate in that micro moment. That if you don't understand that this is a working mother whose husband travels, and therefore when he travels, she's going to use a meal subscription service. Therefore, that that is three days a week, and it's four portions a meal. That's 12 portions. And if you're a grocery retailer that if you don't have a way to offer this female buying decision maker that meal service in a micro way, 
that you're going to lose that business that you traditionally have had from that family, which is exactly what happened in my family, except that I was actually the shopper and my wife took over that shopping and those 12 meals a week left the local grocery store and went to a succession of subscription meal services as my wife has you know, journeyed and discovered which one she likes the best. So that's what I mean by those micro shopping moments. And they're all across, whether it's in apparel and it's on social media. If you as a retailer or you know, a branded company doing direct to consumer, if you don't understand not only the micro moments in your business, but I would argue if you don't understand the customer lifestyle clusters, if you don't understand your customers, and if you don't have understand the lifestyle clusters of your customers, and then understand in general the micro shopping moments, and then understand how you engage in the right touch points in those micro shopping moments, you're losing out on a lot of business. Yeah, exactly. I think what I, I hear you saying is, you have to have all three. It's not enough to just know. Any one of them can help you and move it ahead, but the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, right? If you have, if you understand their lifestyle bracket, you know, if you're able to categorize and understand their their fundamental needs, if you understand what's going on in those micro moments, and then if you have the way to connect and reach them and and satisfy those needs, and if you have all three of those components. There's a huge upside that any one of those components by themselves doesn't afford. Right. And then there's one other dimension is we'll call triggers. Triggers, demand triggers. We can also look, and again, but you know what it is, is you get better and better. So any of them, you're going to do better and better. More of them, it keeps getting more precise. So then triggers is we know that some of this, I bring hyperlocal into this, hyperlocal data. You know, you can think of it as hyperlocal analytics. And by the way, you can't do this manually, right? We help clients build AI and machine learning models to drive this because, you know, you can't, you have to do this at scale. And this isn't something you have people sitting around doing. So there's not people in a back room just tracking whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, with, with green, green eye shades and stuff. Right. Um, no, I mean, this is stuff we, you, you build these models and engines. So then it's the context of, of understanding demand triggers that says, Take a local event, a marathon uh, in a city that we know, and we, by the way, we're not geniuses. We learned this stuff from early work with clients and then building on top of when we were first trying to digest massive amounts of data and we were learning how to crunch it. So this is, you know, originally like five or six years ago, we actually were looking at, at a marathon. We looked at the 20 items that had the greatest sales increase that directly correlated to the marathon. And it was interesting because at this client, only two of them had any promotion. And what do I mean by promotion? I mean point of purchase. That means they were on an end cap on any sort of like, hey, marathon display, anything, any sort of in a circular, meaning in the newspaper circular, you know, any sort of call out online, any sort of price discount, trade promotion or anything. Two out of 20 had any promotional activity whatsoever. Of the 20 items that had the greatest sales lift that correlated to the marathon, that means the marathon drove the sales lift. Now, by the way, that also means that, guess what? They got sales lift and so did their competition. It was equal opportunity for everybody. Now, if they had done more promotion, they would have been able to capture more share of that sales lift than their competition 
or from their competition. And so we, we would consider that then a local event and a demand trigger. And that's what I mean by a demand trigger. Weather is definitely a demand trigger. Obviously, when it rains, umbrellas sell in New York City at drugstores. That's kind of obvious. But there's lots of demand triggers, less obvious ones. And so we, we work with clients to identify demand triggers. How do we do that? Well, we take like three years of, of sales history, and then we take all these demand, all these out exterior events, and we go back and correlate this stuff. And we identify demand triggers at a, at a store SKU level, not just at a category or a group level, but like at a store SKU level. And then, by the way, going forward, we'll build AI machine learning to keep learning and to keep it current and everything. And so you can start to incorporate demand triggers into this. And so then you layer in customer lifestyle clusters, you layer in hyper-local demand triggers, and you start to be able to do some sophisticated stuff. Now, this is all still in its infancy, but you can start to say, when I understand these kinds of things, I can drive some sales lift with this, that I can drive a couple points here and a couple points there. And that's what I mean by, you know, I go back to that sole proprietor. They knew their customers, but they knew their neighborhood. And there's a whole ton of upside available from this. I mean, we're doing things with clients where we're taking forecast air. And you say, forecast air, it's a big deal at a store SKU level. We're taking forecast air at a store SKU level and, and lowering it like 20 points. And it's because of this hyperlocal data, because if we can figure out where to put inventory at a store SKU level, not at a chain level, but at a store SKU level with this kind of data, same idea. So it's the frontier. It's tons of upside still available for retailers. Yeah, there's a lot to digest there. I'll swing it just a little bit. We've been talking a lot about what I would call sort of the back office, artificial intelligence, data analysis, projections based on all those things. Let's switch. I know in your recent study uh, with those 19,000 consumers around the world, you talked about what are the new shopping technologies that consumers are most interested in. What are some of the findings in your report? This is interesting. I said this earlier. Are, are we learning more about consumers or are consumers changing? And the truth is, this definitely told us consumers are changing, and the reality is we're able to learn more about them. So this is clear. Consumers are changing, and, they, and they're changing in a material way that I think it's time for retailers and brand companies to pay attention to. So it's it's one thing, the micro moments thing. So definitely technology is causing people to change their shopping behaviors. But more importantly, the stunning, stunning finding was that this idea that values have become as important as value, meaning that 41% of shoppers are now shopping based on being value-driven, purpose-driven, and they care about, you know, is what I'm doing environmentally sound? Is it sustainable? It was quantitatively, it supported work we had done a couple years ago where we saw that people wanted to belong to a brand, not wear a brand, belong to a brand, that they wanted this brand alignment. But but this was huge. And the reason is, is a year ago, I was at the World Retail Congress in Amsterdam. And I remember we were on the, one of the boats going to a dinner. And you know, we were talking about this sustainability and everything. And 
what we had heard people say was, well, I hear you, but when consumers start voting with their wallets is when we'll start paying attention to it. And so this is what was stunning for us, two things, was not only did people tell us that this was important to us, but now the consumers started telling us they're voting with their wallet, that 70% of the respondents that said that they were conscientious buyers told us that they would pay more for things that were aligned to being environmentally sound, sustainable, the things that were important to them, that they would avoid making purchases that they felt were to the contrary to that. So the point of this is it's reached a tipping point. That's reached a tipping point. That means it drives a couple things. It drives it drives that retailers need to provide transparency and traceability. You know, so work we've done in the food industry around food trust that provides traceability and transparency about where do things come from and, and how have they been treated. I think it's going to accelerate. The fashion industry is one of the most um, environmentally intensive industries in the world. So you see these great initiatives by companies, you know, Levi's and how to create really new innovations and how to create jeans and and everything. So you see these fashion companies leading the way with reducing their their resource intensity because you take these two in our industry, you take food and apparel and those two areas are really environmentally intensive and and you see leaders stepping out car for Levi's to come to mind that are just have been at the forefront of doing things to become, you know, sustainability leaders and there's more to be done. So that's one is I think and consumers may not know the words behind it. They may not know about blockchain and they may not know these, these words that enable it, but they're expecting retailers to provide transparency and traceability. And then there's things they expect in the store to, in, in around their shopping experience to provide that experience in the store. And again, they may not know the words behind it, but they expect that innovative experience in the store as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think it cuts across uh, every area, both in the store and, you know, even online, I I think that uh, brands could do a better job of saying, hey, do you want to bundle all your orders to arrive on the same day in the same packaging, cut down on packaging waste and things like that. So there's the product sourcing itself, and then there's the delivery of those products, whether that be, you know, through shipping or uh, pickup in store or the, the store itself. So, and brands have to get better at communicating what they are doing. Again, like you said, the, the transparency of it and communicating that to consumers so consumers can make you know, informed decisions that they feel good about. Think about you, your point you just made is a great one. Think about this rush to, to be, I've got to have two-day delivery. I, now I, knew, I want to try to have one-day delivery. And it's been a rush to do that, but I don't know about you, but I travel and I order things. And I can't tell you how often I come home and there's stacks of things that I've ordered you know, because I've been away for two and a half weeks, they certainly didn't need to be there the next day or in two days. And and so to your point, this idea of sustainability, giving the consumer a choice to be more sustainable, there's going to be an advantage. And our data shows there is going to be an advantage to those players that start to get focused on this because, you know, I, I got to tell you, I, I was stunned how quickly it happened. I when the team started showing us this data and we saw values driven consumers 
equal to value-driven consumers. And look, that doesn't mean that every time they make every purchase decision. But when you start seeing something like this, I was like, oh, my God, the time has come. It's here. And again, you know, you'll see the leaders. The leaders will be in front of this and we'll see laggards that at some point will start paying the price for it. I think like most things, right? And it'll be the same thing. Is it a renaissance or an apocalypse? We'll have new terms for it, I'm sure. Right. Yes. Well, that might be a good way to uh, close out the show today. Is it a renaissance or apocalypse? I guess it depends on your strategy. Steve, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks for sharing your insights into all of this. Obviously, you sit on top of a, a wealth of data and experience, and I know our listeners appreciated getting a small window into some of that. We're going to put a link to your recent study that you did with uh, the NRF along with the podcast. So anybody who wants to download the study will be able to do that. And uh, again, thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to Rethink Retail. For all the latest news on commerce and trends, join the discussion, rethink.industries.com.